All right, we can uh, thank God. Dear Lord, we're very grateful for uh, these weeks of studying your word. We're grateful for the uh, unique approach that Solomon has taken and how he is leading us through it. We'd ask that we would be given wisdom in our lives how to apply it. In your son's name, amen. Okay, tonight, week three, um, we're going to chapter seven through nine. Um, and I, as I promised at the end, there's going to be Mo Betters. And there's um, this section goes on with telling you the better things in life. Now we have in the back of our mind the general theme that Solomon has let you know that you're going to die. And as far as you're concerned, all that you are is going to end when you die. Now the Lord, because of the new covenant in Christ, is going to give you a new life, but all that you've earned and worked and crafted and valued here is going to be dust and ashes. And so Solomon was a little concerned about this and he uh, despised that fact and but realized in it that God has actually given you this life in this now to enjoy richly and that you can have all sorts of hopes and aspirations about what you're going to achieve but you start to miss what God has given you. And that in the now, there, is, there are these betters that you could lay your mind to. Now, this first section in chapter 7 is, uh, it sounds pretty dark. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of countenance, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Well, that's an interesting thing that could create a lot of late night discussions. Um, college students seeking after greater things, getting into a fight as over whether this is true. We assume it's true. It's written in the scriptures and written by the wisest man uh, ever. And as you go back over it, you begin to realize that Solomon has come to this wisdom and this point of joy. Remember, nothing is better for a man to do than eat, drink, and find enjoyment in his toil. And who can have enjoyment apart from God? This task, this task of the now is not some sort of existentialist, you know, every man do what is right in his own eyes. It was every man do the now what is right in God's eyes, because what is right in God's eyes is the great joy. But he got there by facing up, running everything out to its conclusion, and then seeing death at the end. Now, he lets you know that the, a good name is better than, you know, a precious ointment. Uh, I was thinking about whether or not you want to do anything with that. Um, um, what do uh, precious ointments, uh, fufu juice, uh, perfume, uh, whatever, stink pretty, I think it's called in the... Um, 
and you get all these ads in the Macy's catalog and let you smell these precious ointments and they'll sell you four ounces for you know the price of heroin <laughs> because what will the fufu juice do for you why did they come up with perfume in the Middle Ages and other places preceding bathing well people stank and you had to have just the smell of life was pretty horrid but it's a coverage now, I don't want to push that too much. He's just saying, you know you value precious ointment. Your name, a good name, ought to be of more value than that to you. So are, in all of these betters, you want to say, am I, am I approaching these betters? Am I after these betters? Am I designing my life to vindicate Solomon's claim that a good reputation, a good name? I remember reading a... Uh, uh, declaration by Nebuchadnezzar II, uh, not in the Bible, it was in, you know, collection of Nebuchadnezzar's edicts or something like that. And, uh, and he said something like, may my name be remembered in a good sense, and may my descendants rule forever over the black-headed, uh, whatever, something like that. Uh, but may my name be remembered in a good sense. But a good name is of incredible value. Uh, and more valuable than perhaps the things that come across our desk that we see that we grant value to. Like, you know, you see a dress in the catalog and it says $400 and you want it desperately or a car or something like that. We've got to step back and look at these things that Solomon is recommending, these betters, and truly, truly grant not only Solomon's answer and path, but you don't want to get caught up in the things the world declares precious, you want to be looking at the things God de declares precious and better. But he sort of introduces, it's almost like the good name is not really his theme. He uses it to introduce the death theme. He wants you to get on board. A good name is better than, you get things like that in Proverbs all the time. A good name is better than rubies. It's always a good name and everybody likes that. So you're on board. Everybody goes, yeah, that's sensible. I like that. Solomon I can live with. But then he says the Solomon you can't live with. The day of death is better than the day of birth. Now I've been around enough women's cluck sessions where they compare their episiotomies and their times of labor and whether they had drugs and whether they screamed whether their husband was a help or not. I don't believe any husband has ever been a help. Um, and, and, and women rejoice in their offspring. And then we have birthdays. That's a good thing. But, you know, though Solomon had said earlier in the book that it'd be better if you'd never been born than see all this. And it'd be better than to be dead than have to remember all this. But he says, death is, the day of death is better than the day of birth. It, and if you need an explanation, it's not you dying he's talking about. It's you seeing death. Have you noticed how the scaredy cats of today, all the effeminate men on college campuses of the day, and everybody in the news, everybody's afraid of being hurt and everybody's afraid of dying. Because you go to Safeway and it's shrunk wrapped. Death is shrunk wrapped in a package of meat. You don't even know that it came from an animal. It's just something you cook. Back in my father's day, you have to go up to the backyard, grab a chicken, ring its heck, pluck it, cook it. We're not used to death. 
War does not beset us at every turn. For centuries, whole generations faced war in their backyard all the time. Someone was always dying. And if they weren't being killed by other people, they were dying of disease regularly. So they had it. Solomon had it to look at. And we sort of avoid funerals. Better to go to the house of mourning, better to go to a funeral than to a party, essentially. Because the living will lay it to heart. And he wants, you, he wants to dangle your futility, the terminus to your little experiment called self, the end of everything you build. He wants you to look at that. And that's why people don't want to go to funerals. They don't want to think about their own mortality. Now, I'm 57. I realized how close it might. Sister-in-law is turning 60 this weekend. My brother, he turned 58 in June, 59 in June. He'll be 60 in less than a year. I'm only 16 months younger. Oh, my heavens. I'm going to be dead soon. Now, you young people can't even, you can't even picture the thought of you lying in a coffin. I've been measured for a coffin. And death starts to creep in, and you start to have an ache in your hip, and, and your knees don't get out of the chair very easily. And you get lingering illnesses, and you start to die. I don't know if I learned this anatomy physiology back in college years, but they told me then, I don't know if they were telling me the truth, David could correct me, but the body starts to die at 25. It grows to 25, and bing, you start to die. It's just falling apart. And we try to ignore it. We've got longevity, we've got oil of Olay, we've got uh, all sorts of things to stop it. And he wants you to look at it. He wants you to lay it to heart. Because sorrow is better than laughter. This is where he's, okay, Solomon, you're digging too deep a hole here. I can understand a Christian, you know, dealing with mortality and be grateful that God has saved us from the sting of death and those sorts of things. And that non-Christians can think about death and the judgment, yeah. Yeah, but sorrow better than laughter? And this is where it gets confusing. For by sadness of countenance, the heart is made glad. Okay. Everybody ready to jump off this train, this, this Solomonic uh, exercise and futility? Why is this the case? Well, perhaps you don't understand or you haven't uh, uh, pulled it all together in, in two weeks, or in your, your thoughts about proverbial wisdom or, or wisdom itself. But your only choice, really, in life, is either to understand it, Aaron and I were talking about this earlier today, understanding it or, or just going after life by whatever needs you're feeling at the moment, whatever passions. You either understand what you're doing and craft a life or you have a reactive life or you just emotionally respond or passionately respond or habitually respond or you do things. Now if you do things doesn't mean that, that because you have a philosophy of life that you're right but if you're right and you're doing a life you're going to be in a far greater state of peace because you will be one with your universe. You know that whole kind of Buddhist Hindu thing being one without... 
I saw a, a, an actual newscaster, British newscaster, BBC or something like that, interviewing the Dalai Lama. And he's trying to tell a joke to the Dalai Lama. This is the real Dalai Lama. This is a real, I don't know, have you seen this video? Anybody? Where, where he, he can't keep a straight face and he's, he's telling him it's being interpreted and he says, the Dalai Lama goes into a pizza joint. And the guy interprets it and the Dalai Lama's nodding his head, smiling. And, and the guy says, and he said, make me one with everything. <laughs> and the Dalai Lama doesn't get it. I mean, the guy had the nerve to tell that joke to the Dalai Lama. I credit the man. But this wisdom of God, rather than you running around like some horny teenager or some, some, some tool of a fraternity brother or some completely locked in death of a salesman type of life where you work it out by your urges or you work it out by some false notion, you go to a funeral, you go to a number of funerals, you start to meditate on death, you start to see the futility and by sorrow of the countenance is the heart made glad. Because the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, and the heart of fools in the house of mirth. Because the fools, they don't, they just want to run around in circles, hold the beer in their hand. They, they're just, have a good time. Please, don't let it stop. And then they wake up one day with cancer, or they wake up one day in a car accident, and they, they, they just think it's unfair, I was just having fun. If you want to be glad, if you want to enjoy, the fear of the Lord, the pleasing of the Lord, wisdom, knowledge, and joy come from this and, and knowing what it really is. Having what some people would say a dark appraisal. I've been a futilitarian for decades. And I would say my, I have a jaded view of, of life. I, I don't think people are good. I think they're largely idiots. And I think this is all a pile of dust and I'm going to be dead shortly. And I'm very happy. Now, most people, since they live according to their passions, if you give them an idea like that, it's like tell them they're ugly and their mother dresses them funny. Um, they think it's a, well, you just said something negative. How can I be happy? This is not, it's a negative, but it's a true negative. And when you incorporate truth into your mind and life, when you look at the world the way God looks at the world, there's rejoicing in it. You're, you're in tune, if you want to think of it in those terms. You listen to rebuke because the rebuke of the wise is far better. The sorrow is far better. The wise man is in the house of mourning because it's far better because that's where you're learning what really is. The idea is to get insight. It says in Proverbs repeatedly that if you get anything, you get insight. What if he's right about life? The Song of Fools, I think karaoke. Verse 7. Surely oppression makes the wise man foolish, and a bribe corrupts the mind. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Are you noticing 
the betters? Are you noticing the um, sometimes turning things on their head that I've been in this discussion many times, just on a, not out of this passage, but of people who try to argue, no, it's the process. No, the smart guy says it's the end. Not its beginning. It's when you get there. That's the measure of what things are. That's what people don't want to face up to because that is the justification for everything everyone does. And they don't want to think about whether this is going to turn out. They don't want to think about whether their immoralities are going to turn out for them. You know, what, the first time you take math, I hear it's pretty fun. Uh, a prosecutor friend of mine said, if you looked at marijuana, it'd be like, in pleasure terms, it's like 200. Heroin is about 2,000. Math is like 20,000, if you want to think about how much fun it is. And why do people, I mean, I've seen the commercials, I've seen meth heads, what a travesty, what a calamity. But no, that's the end of the thing. Well, everybody's life is on that track. Everybody is picking something a little more socially acceptable than methamphetamines, but they're picking a train wreck. And the train wreck is gonna to come to them. The end is better than the beginning. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Because we're not at the end, any of us. We're going to have to, we're in a sense, realizing the end to pay attention to the now. We take patience now. Because the proud man, and I like the fact that he juxtaposed patient and proud. When, when, uh, when James, we mentioned the passage last week, talks about um, boasting about what you're going to do tomorrow. And he says... All such boasting is evil. You're boasting? I was just planning to go to the mall. I was just going to start a business. Doesn't Obama want me to start a business? Well, the idea that you think, like the rich fool at Luke, that you can just do what you want because the end of the thing and the end of us all is dead. Now we have to realize how much pride is also protecting us or keeping us from accepting what Solomon says. Now I, I skipped over that verse 7 about the oppression and the bribe corrupting the mind. I don't know why that's in there. It, 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 it seems to flow in regard to his protection of wisdom. He wants you to protect. Don't throw wisdom over the side. Uh, it's one of the better things. You're just as dead as the fool, but you were wise while you were here. But be aware of the things that can derail you. Um, all these things you want to accept as a, um, as a guide to your, or anchor points for your thinking. Be not quick to anger, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? Ah, here's our use of the better but they were wrong. The word better doesn't mean every time we use it, we get to use it. You can think of a lot of betters that you think are better than Solomon's betters. You're just wrong. Do, th th it's not from wisdom that you ask this. One, he said at the beginning of the book, the whole thing keeps going around and around and around. Things aren't better back then. 
Ever noticed uh, in Christian circles, they have glory days of Christianity? I would recommend, if you believe that, that you don't read any history. Because nothing is more tragic to realize that um, it was always wicked. Everybody was as wicked as they could technologically be. And if you didn't have printed pornography, you had frescoes of pornography on Roman villa walls. That's what you had. That's what they dug up at Pompeii. That's why they don't show you all of Pompeii. Because people are wicked. People killed people. What did he say before the flood? Every imagination of their heart was only evil continually. Far worse than now. Don't ever say the 50s were better. They weren't. You've seen Mad Men, right? Um, don't say that the 1640s were better. It was an awful time with Christians killing Christians. Worse than this. Much worse than this. It's not from wisdom that you ask this. If you try to escape futility in a nostalgia, that's what nostalgia will often do. It provides you an imaginary world that you think is real, but it's a fairy tale. You're either telling yourself one about the past, or you're telling yourself one about the future. Anything to live in either the past or the future and not live right now. It's not that now is any better, but at least you got proof that's here. I mean, you, you guys are here, I'm here, right? We're all here. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Now it may be that, 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 that he, it makes it sound here in the RSV like that wisdom is good with an inheritance. That, um, that it would be better, you could interpret it a few ways. Wisdom plus money is great. That's one. Uh, or that if you have an inheritance, it'd be good to get wisdom with it. You know, if you're passing money on to your kids, pass on some good advice too, that sort of thing. Or it could actually be, since this next sentence seems to follow this train, he's saying they're like each other. They're like each other. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. So maybe he wants to tie them together. Maybe he's saying really that money is like an inheritance. Or wisdom is like an inheritance. Because they both protect you. Or maybe it's good to get them both at the same time. Because they're both protections. Whatever the case, money that you understand, and we seem to quantify our answers in life monetarily. Wisdom is that sort of thing. It preserves you. But one thing you have to recognize about both money and wisdom, you can't fix it. All right? Let me let you know that you could have all the money of Croesus. You could, well, Steve Jobs had a whole lot of money. Couldn't buy him any more minutes. Who by worry can add one cubit to their span of life? You can't do it. That's why the end of the thing is so important. Why you need to go look at the caskets at the funeral. Neither wisdom nor money is going to make you live any longer. 
and you can't fix what God has made crooked. And he subjected, he says in Romans 8, I keep bringing you back to that, Romans 8, the promise of the glorification of the saints is being taught in light of the futility that God subjected the creation to. Okay? He subjected it um, to this futility. So don't think, when you think, well, what about all the needs in the world? Well, don't get caught up on excusing your attempt at utility by claiming some moral high ground of accomplishment. You won't fix it. Jesus Christ walked the earth, had all the power of God at his disposal, and most of the people sick on earth while Christ lived stayed sick. Well, that's true right now. God has the power to cure everybody of their ailments. If God was good, I'd lose weight suddenly. But the answer, the answer for us is realizing the futility was placed. God subjected it to. Futility is not the design of the evil one. Futility is the design of God. He has made it crooked. Don't think you could straighten it out. It's nice to do good things for people, but don't think you're answering something. Ever think about that with Lazarus? When you get brought back to life and you go, oh, yeah, he's got to die twice. <laughs> Lucky Lazarus. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider. Got that? Good times? Rejoice in it. When it's going lousy, think about it. God has made the one as well as the other. So that man might not find out anything that will be after him. Guess why you don't understand what's going on? Because God does not want you to understand what is going on. Remember, we have a natural tendency to pride, to run our own lives and to be in charge of ourselves and think that we can fix the world. We get so much Christian debate and problems with other believers and been following a couple online recently that just, hey, how do Christians get into so much trouble with each other? Well, they think they're fixing each other. They're just being little bossy pants with each other about theology. Why do we get involved in what, why do we fight wars and rumors of wars? What? What does what James say? Whence comes wars and fightings among you? Is it not your passions that wage war in your members? Our pride, our conceits, our extension of our wills, we think we're doing something. We think if we have a right idea, everybody else is owed it. Matter of fact, everybody needs to adopt it. Consider realize that for all the good that money may be, and all the good, I mean, Solomon was pro-money. That's pretty clear, Proverbs and here and the like. He says it's a protection. He says that in the next, next week's lesson. We get a bit of uh, money answers everything, a great little verse. Um, and wisdom is a great protection. And yet, what's crooked won't be made right by either of those. In my vain life, I've seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. There is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. This is a real, this whole section, you know, 
he says, he says weird things, mother. I'm a little disturbed. Next verse, be not righteous over much, and do not make yourself over wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not wicked over much, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? You wanted to cover your children's ears before that came out? Don't be righteous over much. Don't be overwise. Why should you destroy yourself? Okay. Good advice. Live long and prosper, whatever. We have in this world the possibility, first off, of over-righteousness. Over-wisdom, over-wickedness. Now that, but you do have just regular wickedness. I, I noticed the one thing that didn't have over was foolishness. I guess it's always over. But the wicked, you can be overly wicked. You know some, probably some nice wicked people who are not over wicked, drunk occasionally, cuss somebody out once in a while, bitter, but they're not Hitler. Right? And you know some people that are over wicked. But the problem that you're, you're bugged with, you can understand the destruction on the over-wicked and foolish. But the over-righteous and over-wise? Ever met one of those? Oh, they're trouble. Because what, what do you have to do to be over-wise and over-wicked? I mean over-righteous and over-wise. Because it means too much. An extreme. Because we seem to think that if we could, and you see people every Christmas in the Philippines, there are some, a group called the Penitentes, that literally get crucified with nails. Okay? There were the, the, um, the flagellants in the Middle Ages in groups of thousands who'd walk from town to town with whips, and they would whip themselves in front of a cathedral until they passed out from loss of blood. Then they'd march to the next town and do the same thing. And we have a tradition of how much rigor and abasement and, and complete giving yourself to the things of God as sort of our standard. Like, we don't think that there is a, a top to it. There's a top to it. But where does it cross the line? Because are the penitentes obeying God too much? To become overly something you've got to enter the range arena of your own notions of what you're going to give, how far you're going to go, how much you're going to give up for Jesus. And Jesus says, I didn't really ask for all that, thank you. I didn't ask you to do all that. Solomon then says, it is good that you should take hold of this. The word good there, I put it in red. You know why? It's the same word as the betters above. It is better that you should take hold of this. And from that, withhold not your hand. He gave you two pieces of advice. This and that. Do not be over-righteous. Do not be over-wicked. 
Both of them involve destruction. Take hold of this. But then he says, For he who fears God shall come forth from them all. You're not to be offering a greater devotion. And if you're thinking in your mind, well, there's no greater, there's no concept of devotion that I could not offer that would be adequate for God, then you're in trouble. Okay, you're, you're on the path to destruction. You're on the path to getting the snot slapped out of you. Because you're taking on your own notions, you're going to provide God with more. He who fears God will come forth from the wall. Solomon wants you, he's not advising you to be only slightly wicked. But he knows that destruction is at the, at, at the end of the over, you might be excessive of either. You will be destroyed. When you realize <coughs> some things that wisdom does, wisdom starts to parse out life, in some cases, in ways that turn everything you believe to be true on its head. Every little pedestrian um, satisfaction that you crafted out of the American way might be wrong. Some of the things that he suggests, wisdom here, verse 19, gives strength to the wise men more than ten rulers that are in a city. Do you know this? Do you know, do you know that wisdom is a greater strength than ten powerful men? It's a ten to one better. Surely, there's another bit of truth, there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Uh, that's probably one of the Christian doctrines, right? Depravity. Okay, that's, you know, Romans 3. That's all over that. Do not, this is a little more personal, give, do not give heed to all the things that men say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Ah, oh, what a surprise. Your heart knows that many times you have cursed others. What a when you start to actually think about life and break down what you've been given, what is, what is it built? It's made out of wicked people. It's a wicked place made out of wicked people and it's surprising it holds together for more than two minutes. It's surprising you can drive across town given the wickedness in the air. And all these houses around here are filled with wicked people doing wicked things to each other while they think wicked thoughts probably about us. And yet, we hold an election, and we transfer government, and we buy and sell and get gain, and nobody kills each other. Well, a few people kill each other. It's a, you start to have, when the, when the scales start to come from your eyes, like what they did for St. Paul, when he went from a Pharisee to a Christian, you ever wonder why he was so big on grace that he fought St. Peter about it? Well, he had had the scales literally fall from his eyes where the grace of God came home to him. In some way, you coming to grip with the way the world actually is is like the scales coming off. You begin to see the wickedness of man. And bugs, wherever they came from. The fall. All this I've tested with... Oh, the last thing about you doing the same stuff... Remember that part of the problems, part of the conceit, part of the pride that's going on that keeps you from being patient, keeps you from admitting that your, your existence is pointless and, and other sorts of utilitarian things, um, we stop thinking about our own sins. You ever watching someone make criticism of somebody else? You're going, oh, 
hold it. That, he does the exact same thing all the time. Far worse, in fact. The wise person is understanding the power of wisdom, understands the presence of sin, understands it's infected you. You are not an innocent party. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which is, is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? Guy's just been telling us really unsettling things, and then he tells us this. I turn my mind to know and search out and seek wisdom in the sum of things, and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness which is madness. Looking for, looking for the unified theory. You know, Stephen Hawking thinks he's you know, rolling around in his wheelchair and trying to think of unified theory and such. And Solomon was strolling through his palace with maybe 50 of his wives with him and uh, trying to think about the sum of things. You know, what the, what's, the, what's the big, you know, what's the, what's the answer to the meaning of the universe? 42. 42, thank you. Um, what's that? Life, universe, and Life, universe, and everything is 42. Solomon said, nah, Douglas Adams doesn't know where he's getting it. Neither did Douglas Adams. So, um, but he goes, I'm looking for the sum of things. I want to have the answer. So that people look back at Solomon and go, you know, Plato, he was a piker. Aristotle, a nobody. 500 years, 800 years before these guys, Solomon gave the answer. Here's the sum of things. And he goes, I can't find it. It's just too deep. The wisest guy, and you begin to realize everything you turn over, you're turning over more things. The world's too complicated. But what is actually happening here? He says, and what I found, verse 26, more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets, and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, adding one thing to another to find the sum which my mind has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. Behold, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many devices. Now, I'm sorry, ladies. I'm sure you're fine women. You just didn't know Solomon, I guess when he was walking around the halls of the palace with 50 of his wives, or all thousand of them, and he was thinking, what's the sum? And he looks around at his thousand wives and goes, not one of them. And of course, he wasn't finding much better in men. I mean, one in a thousand is not real hot for men either. And you, we, we can't just think, well, we're <laughs> one in a thousand. Women are zero in a thousand, but, you know, maybe in two thousand. But none of us are doing very well. And his conclusion is, what I alone I found was, God made the world good. He made man upright. But we sought out other things. We would rather seek out these devices, something to do that we want to do, instead of the uprightness that God gave us opportunity in. And so the man seeks it by being led astray by a woman whose, hearts is, whose heart is snares and fetters, snares and nets, the fool is led astray by her. The sinner is taken by her. The righteous man escapes. Women are being bad. Men are being fooled by bad women. It's a dark story. But don't, let's not pretend that the world is any different than this. 
We talk to married friends who don't know the Lord. We talk to some who do. Wisdom is a very rare substance. It's more rare than the one man in a thousand. Who is like the wise man? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? We know that the wise man dies just like the fool. We learned that a couple weeks ago. A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his countenance is changed. My father has told me, and I've noticed it over the years, as he's taught on confession of sin and bitterness and all the rest, he says you can see it on people's faces when they're bitter because they, they repose their folly, their sin, in their countenance. I was telling my wife the other day, we spotted a woman at the grocery store or something. I said, she's, she's not happy. Well, we know that our expressions are on our face. But when your mom said, if you keep making that face, it'll stick. That, well, it does. <laughs> and because you can't really understand your world and you really are not good enough or smart enough or gifted enough or powerful enough or wise enough to run your own life, all of your folly comes to rest right here. But a wise man, his countenance becomes luminous and softened. Just like the death observed correctly makes you glad, puts you in right position with all that is. Then he goes into a little advice about your dealing with authority because we're not just citizens, uh, free spirits who are free men and women just doing what we want. We're in authority relationships. King, country, parents, spouses. And an awful lot of this control of our lives, like I said earlier, that oppression um, makes a wise man foolish. Keep the king's command. Because it's not only the oppressor that can lose his wisdom. Keep the, keep the king's command. Because of your sacred oath, be not dismayed. Go from his presence. Do not delay when the matter is unpleasant. For he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? He who obeys a command will meet no harm. And the mind of a wise man will know the time and way. For every matter has its time and way although man's trouble lies heavy upon him. This is the application. Much of this book is telling you in the, the, the themes that he gave you at the beginning, he repeats them over and over again, about enjoying life and realizing that I'm selecting the better from the now. The better that I'm guided to by pleasing God, fearing God, wisely encountering, trying to pull out. Um, He's given you an example of how you exist in a monarchy. He was a monarch. And probably for years he'd been an unwise, and maybe even oppressive monarch. He's giving advice to the citizen. He says, you know, this is an opportunity for you to say to yourself, practically, what's the time and way for this? Rather than, you know, bridling at being told to do anything, if you're still living with your parents, or if you're still, if you're, if you're married and you don't like the guy in charge? Do you, do you bridle? Do you contend? Do you fret? Or do you go, don't delay when the matter is unpleasant? The wise will know the time and the way. The wise child will know the time and the way. The wise spouse will know the time and the way. 
For every matter has its time and way. He's applying what has been taught. He does not know, for he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him what, how it will be? No man has the power to retain the spirit or authority over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. Basically, you can run, but you can't hide. So quit running. Ask the right questions of yourself and God. How am I going to do this, O Lord? What is the time? How will I make this beautiful? Because everything becomes beautiful in its time. All this I observe while applying my mind to all that is done under the sun, while man lords it over man to his hurt. He is not just an oriental despot trying to protect his oriental despotism. He understands that there's problems in governance. Bad husbands, bad parents, bad kings, bad masters. You've got to have advice about how you're going to pick it up as it is, not how you could imagine it to be in some glory time or utopian moment that you can never get at. You cannot make straight what God has made crooked. So you better learn to deal. He recognized that man lords it over man to his hurt. He re recognizes that wisdom is lost through oppression. But he's also got to tell you, and St. Paul does the same thing when he tells servants how to obey their masters who are oppressive. St. Peter does the same thing. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. I don't know if he's just trying to poke you with a stick throughout this book where he says, eh, you know, <laughs> and the people that are the greatest in your church and are praised throughout this great town of Moscow, and you know how wicked they are? I remember asking kids many years ago, many years ago, who was the worst kid in the school? They were seventh graders. They had to have a good idea. Seventh graders are the oppressed class. They have no glory for being out of grade school because grade school kids forget they exist. And once you leave grade school, you went to heaven, as far as they know. But they are the bottom of all things. It's the last time you'll be the bottom of all things, because in college, freshmen, eh, there's no longer that tradition of messing with freshmen. But seventh graders, my gosh, pariah. But they know, they had been looking, they had observed, and they told me. And the name they gave me, I will not give it to you, but it was the name that the teachers had voted for the faculty commendation. He was the worst kid in the school. And they had stories. Praised in the gates. Praised in the city. Praised in the Christian school that we all went to. But he saw them buried. That's nice. I got to walk. I walk on their graves. But this is, you have to realize that in the wickedness of man, when it tells you back earlier, there are people nobody who doesn't do some evil because sentence against the evil deed is not executed speedily the heart of the sons of men is fully set to do evil now that's usually a piece of advice that we try to give to parents or governments or whatever saying look if you let the guy sit on you know in the jail for years before he gets his, through his appeals it's not functional it's just saying something true God does not punish the wicked speedily okay Thank God, you might want to thank God for that, 
because all of you deserved to be damned. And at some point, you got away with who knows how many years of damnable offenses before you sought repentance. God was patient, and you would be thankful for it. But it was a temptation in it. They are tempted, but by not knowing what the end is. And so they do more evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. And it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. And he seems to change his position there midway. I think he's basically saying, the wicked does wickedness a hundred times and seems to get away with it, but he won't get away with it. That's, that's largely the... Um, you're the one that fears God. You've got to realize, remember when it told you wisdom, knowledge, and joy comes to those who please God? Well, the beginning of it all is the fear of the Lord. The beginning of it all is, why do I obey the God? There is a vanity which takes place on earth, and there are righteous men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said this also is vanity. You know, futility doesn't claim to work. That's the whole point. Things get upended. Things get destroyed. Wicked people seem to get away with it, and righteous people get caught in the gears and well what do we so, so well that's what it is it's futile it gives everybody this freedom in a broken planet to run around exercising their will and they are either going to come back around suddenly and go I need to fear the God I need to fear him I need to please him because I want to enjoy my life truly enjoy it understand it with a heart made glad understanding the futility, not trying to make my heart glad with the pursuit of pleasure. He says, I commend enjoyment. For, no man, for man has no good thing under the sun but to eat and drink and enjoy himself, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of life which God gives him under the sun. When I applied my mind to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. It's not only unfixable, you can't make straight what God has made crooked, you can't even get your hand or mind around it. You may claim you can, you may think about some of the big questions, but the fact that it's out of reach to you, remember when he says God has put eternity to man's heart that he might not know what would come hereafter. He said that earlier tonight, that you would not know that God, uh, God has uh, made one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. You are denied even knowledge of it all. You're given the possibility of some knowledge to improve your lot, but you can't get it all. You, you don't have responsibility for it all. It drives you back to right now. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Now, remember, Solomon is writing a thousand years before the Lord comes in the Incarnation. 
He doesn't have the promises of the gospel. He only has shale staring him in the face. He still has hopes. Um, but he says, laying it to heart. I don't, he didn't know the nature of the judgment. He didn't know how your life as one of the righteous or one of the wise were going to be handled by God. Whether it is going to be love or hate, I don't know. But he laid it to heart. Everything before them is vanity since one fate comes to all. So the righteous and the wicked, to the good and to the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice, as is the good man, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that one fate comes to all. Also, the hearts of men are full of evil, and the madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. He's reasserting his, this calamity of death and how it takes everybody good and bad. And after that, he doesn't know what's going on. And calamity is going to happen to you, and death can happen to you. God's judgments are God's. He rests on that. And, 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 and as we as Christians, as I mentioned a minute ago, have the sting of death taken away, only by hindsight, looking back at the answer, looking forward a thousand years, Solomon didn't have it. Even if you talk to the prophets later on, Isaiah wouldn't have been able to tell you a theology of the Messiah. They did not know what it was they were prophesying about other than you were the ones it was being prophesied for. And we get to look back at the Incarnation and know all the story of that which delivered us from death, but recognize the futility is still there. Solomon's answers about all that you do, these chairs, that house, this city, this empire, all going to be nothing. And you're going to be nothing in terms of your physical experience. Only your spirit in Christ your resurrection body, not this one. All your working out, all your good eating, your core workouts. Dead. Dead. 40 years max. You don't usually get that said to you at a Bible study. You're going to be dead. But what we have in Christ is more in, just more information about hope. Okay? That's what he says in in Romans 8, he is he who subjected it to futility, subjected it in hope. Okay? And look what Solomon does. Verse 4, but he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. Even though he said, you know, life's not that great. But one thing you can say for life is if you have the now... If you take God's responsibility, what you're doing in the now, there is this thing that you don't know. Solomon, Solomon didn't know whether it was love or hate that God was going to deal with the wicked and the, or the righteous and the, and the wise with uh, what, what you're going to get. He didn't know the nature of the judgment. But there's hope there because the future. When you look at the future, you either that's how we differ from the animals, one of the ways. We have hope. Because we know there's this, or we have fear. That's the other one. I recommend hope. But hope has to rest in something. You don't want, it says in Romans 8 also, hope that is seen is not hope. Hope does not disappoint us. We, we have a sureness in hope, not just because we don't want a bad thing to happen, we hope. We have to hope in a, in a real claim. We have to, 
if I have hope, I want to build it on something. Being more righteous, being more wise. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is lost. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and they have no more forever any share in all that is done under the sun. That wraps it up for him. So he says, recommends, go eat your bread with enjoyment. And drink your wine with a merry heart. Tammy, Leslie. For God has already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head, which I never saw the point of, but... Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the vain days of your life which he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. That's our theme verse for our marriage seminar. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Well, it's a big list of rather pretty regular good times, enjoyments. The bread, eat your bread with enjoyment. Get a merry heart with your wine. God has approved it. He's given good gifts. I have this thing from Timothy 4 here on the side. Now the Spirit expressly says in later times, some will depart from the faith by giving heed to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons through the pretensions of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and enjoin abstinence from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For then it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. God has approved these things for you. Your food, your wine, your wife, your clothing, your pomade, whatever you use the oil for. And whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol, to which you are going. Now, we're not facing Sheol right now. The absence from the body to be present with the Lord, post the new covenant, we're in a different state in the immediate hereafter. But what he said was true in 1000 BC, and he says, you know, and I'd recommend that it's in marriage that you think of this especially because Jesus Christ said in the New Covenant, in heaven there is neither marriage nor given in marriage. This is the only time you have to enjoy life with the wife whom you love. This is it. You'll just be friends or something up there. Acquaintances wave, wave at each other. I used to be married to her. You'll say to your friends. This is it. God has given you these things for this kind of life, this futility, these joys, these transientnesses, color coming into the eyes and you not being able to retain it. You cannot be satisfied with what you hear. God has made it thus that you be constantly benefited. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to the men of skill. This is a, not just evil in the world, but the right things don't always produce 
and guarantee the right result. But time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish which are taken in an evil net, and like birds which are caught in a snare, so the sons of men are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. That's the way the world is. You don't like to see it. It's awful when it happens in a movie. Some just awful calamity just suddenly drops out of nowhere and slays a family of four. We get it with the rich fool. The rich fool didn't do anything wrong. The only problem the rich fool didn't do was he didn't spend his time being rich towards God. He was just successful as a farmer. He was going to build bigger barns. And the Lord said, hey, guess what? Time's up. Evil snare. Taken when you're not expecting it. Well, the wise man has taken this into consideration. He says time and chance are trump cards that get played by futility for the strong. Usually the battle goes to the strong. Usually. Usually riches go to the intelligent. Favor to the men of skill. Ain't always thus. It's no guarantee. The world is meant to play you crooked. It is bent because of sin. Okay? That's what the New Covenant tells you. is because of sin, God's subject to the creation of futility. You're being told by Solomon how to discover it, accept it, embrace it, use it as God would have you use it. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. I wondered if Solomon was the great king who was laying siege to the city. But that's aside. But I say that wisdom is better than might. Though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heeded. This, is a, this example of wisdom, the thing that is great to Solomon about this, is not that there was reward to the wise man for his wisdom. That there was bread for the wise. This wise guy delivered the city and then was left unrecognized, despised, not listened to. It's still better. Because sometimes we look at the betters. I'll give you an example of this is a nothing to do with it, sort of. Back in my days at Logos School, they're always trying to come up with ways with, to, to defend the Latin curriculum. And uh, they're always trying to say, well, it helps you with your English and your language skills and your business and your sciences and all, you know, come up with all sorts of things you could apply this good to. And I said, wow, man, that's awful. You learn Latin because it's better than you. You're not as great as the people who spoke Latin, so shut up. That's, that was my argument. People didn't use it. They, they, they despised it, my, my wisdom. And you say, well, what does that have to do with this? Um, it has to do with the idea that sometimes we take the things that God has made better 
in the context of a book that he said, hey, the now, just take this, enjoy this. And we try to think of how to turn those betters into their claims of utility. The wisdom does this. In the future, you will get a better job and it will enhance your resume. And, and remember, the wise don't necessarily get bread, or the riches don't go to the intelligent. It, it's nothing that's guaranteed. There's not an equation here. And you can slip back into thinking you're building a utility if you don't just go, you know, the wisdom was good in its moment. It saved the city. It says, the words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. You embrace the wisdom because of what it is right now. It straightens out what it can of what is crooked in this world. You can't fix it all. It doesn't guarantee any necessarily good response. It guarantees you a softened countenance, a better relationship with your God, a better relationship with, with, um, with the one, with the all, with, with what you're living in because you understand it. It's better than countless things that you would might, might roll the dice in favor of, of. If I had more cannons, more chariots, more, more powers, uh, if I had a lot of people listening to me, the shouting of a ruler among fools, even if you don't ever get ready, no one applauds you and no credits and no money, it was better because as far as you're concerned, you only have well, one of the great verses at the end of uh, the first nine chapters of Proverbs. The wise man is wise for himself. And the fool, he alone will bear it. All of this is how you're going to feel in your life. Not we are going to feel in our life. You are going to feel in your life. And to be wise and to have pleased God and to have the joy of this now because you've arranged it well. You understood and breathed God's virtue about the world. That's just better. That's just peace. That's just... But always remember that no matter what you build, one sinner doesn't take very long to destroy it. One sinner destroys much good. It's far more contagious than smart. It's far more contagious than wise. It's more contagious than righteousness. And it is far more calamity-driven. Sin will just take everything to pieces very quickly. So don't try to dodge that. Know that it's there. Don't try to pretend some Pollyanna world. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we are very grateful. Once again, watch over our thoughts as we try to process this stuff and go back over it again and again on our own. And we'd ask that you would clarify anything that was unclear or that was wrong or misdirected, we'd ask that you would keep us growing in your wisdom. And in your son's name we pray. Amen.